Well, we are going to show you some pretty stark video now. It is a Russian helicopter being shot down by Ukrainian forces. The pictures showing a Russian Mi-24 helicopter being struck by a surface-to-air missile come from a Ukrainian government source. It is not clear where exactly in Ukraine the strike took place. It's Tuesday, March the 8th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be moderating today's show, joined as usual by the three Hoover Goodfellows, as we jokingly refer to them. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. And joining us today from the nation's capital is Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher. Representative Gallagher sits on the House Armed Services and Intelligence Committees. He holds master's degrees in security studies and strategic intelligence, as well as a PhD in international relations. Add that to his seven years of service in the United States Marine Corps, including two tours of duty in Iraq, where I think he once came across H.R. McMaster. He's an ideal choice for a conversation about Ukraine, Russia, and the many military, geopolitical, and economic aspects of this conflict. Congressman Gallagher, welcome to Goodfellows. It's an honor to be with you. And I actually uh, worked for HR in a more difficult battlefield in DC when he was in charge of the CENTCOM assessment team. And I was fetching him coffee and getting occasionally tackled by him in the hallways of the National Defense University. <laughs> well, let's get to it. Uh, a lot happened in Washington today. Uh, keep in mind, this is Tuesday the 8th. Things may change between now and when people watch the show. What happened today? Let's see, you increased a lot of aid to Ukraine in Congress. Uh, there's a report in the Wall Street Journal, Congressman, that uh, House Democrats, congressional Democrats, basically strong-armed the administration into doing the Russian oil embargo. Uh, and on top of that, on a related note, uh, there's also a journal article saying that uh, Saudi and UAE officials are not taking our phone calls right now. Uh, this is not good news for an administration that maybe wants the Saudis to pump more oil and wants them to look the other way if we're going to allow the Iranians to build missiles and enrich uranium. Oh, let me add to that, by the way, we still don't know if we're going to allow Polish airplanes to land on a U.S. airbase in Germany to launch sorties into uh, Ukraine. Congressman, this is a long way of asking you, what do you think the U.S. is going to do next vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? And if you're running the show, what do you think we should be doing? Well, we didn't technically uh, increase assistance to Ukraine today. We voted on two suspension bills, so meaningless bills. There was a delay in, in the package and the broader omnibus package. But I expect something will pass tomorrow, and I think there's broad bipartisan support for yeah. Ukraine. However, um, I have a bit, of, I think, of a contrarian take on the whole thing. You know, like so many on Twitter, I'm now an expert in Russian military operations. Um, but uh, and I think it's fair to say, and I, I fully concede that the Russian operation has uh, encountered uh, unanticipated friction, as most military operations do. The the Blitzkrieg has been all Krieg and no Blitz. Um, but the narrative seems to be that this has been an act of diplomatic ledger domain on the part of the Biden administration. And uh, while I welcome the hardening of NATO's position, the rearming of NATO, uh, the statements we've heard from Germany are, are certainly uh, uh, certainly cause for, for hope. But thus far, besides the lethal assistance, I'm just aware that Olaf Scholz has, has said he's going to spend 2% of GDP on, on defense. Um, but I think it's a bit too early to, to call this a success. Uh, the Russian military has proven quite good at absorbing enormous losses and, and, mm -hmm. and moving forward. Uh, and I admit to having been burned by the Afghanistan scenario, which the administration also tried to spin as a success. And I keep coming back to the basic fact that deterrence, or at least the specific variant of deterrence that this administration put into practice, 
failed in this case. In my opinion, it failed because Biden thought that the threat of sanctions and mean tweets would deter Putin. Mm -hmm. um, and we failed to put hard power in Putin's path. They delayed assistance to Ukraine for over a year. They signaled consistently that they would not use military force. The president himself in what could have been a gaffe downplayed a minor incursion. And we also, uh, the Biden administration launched a war on American energy production while giving a green light to Putin's pipeline, which I think was a massive deal. Hey, hey Mike, how, how about pulling out of the Black Sea also? A hundred percent. And I don't know if that was out of concerns over Turkey's willingness to give us access in the Montreux Convention, but we could have gotten access. We could have had a few destroyers there. And oh, by the way, the same argument, Afghanistan, they sold us Afghanistan on this concept of we're going to move to a posture of, of over the horizon counterterrorism and it will free up assets to focus on China. Well, all we had to do was shift a bunch of naval assets to the Middle East that we need in other parts of the world, whether it's the Black Sea or whether it's Indo-PACOM. So I'm not saying this to assign blame. I just think it, we should all be interested in how and why deterrence failed in this case so we can learn the right lessons. And to me, the most obvious is that you need hard power to deter. I don't know if it was Frederick the Great or, or Freddie Mercury who said uh, diplomacy without armaments is like instrument without music. But I think this proves that case. And it, I, I hope that this turns into an utter quagmire for Russia. I think there are many things we can do to ensure that happens. Um, but this is very early. And so to take a victory lap now, I think is misguided on a couple levels, if that makes sense. Well, and it's, it's also inappropriate based on the suffering of the Ukrainian people, right? So I think what we ought to do is clarify what our objectives are. I think you just mentioned one of them, Mike. Hey, make sure Russia fails, right? That's, that's important for the free world. Uh, it's, it's important for Ukraine. But the second is, how about you know, mitigating the humanitarian catastrophe? What more can be done there? And then I think, you know, to your point, what did we learn that we have to get after like right now in terms of a sensible energy policy that recognizes the need for energy security? Or how about the need for hard power, significant increases, I think, in our defense budget, but also in the capabilities that are positioned forward that maybe the Russians really care about? I mean, no offense to the 82nd Airborne. I'll tell you, I love paratroopers, and, and I, I relied heavily on them in combat in, in Iraq. Uh, they're the most skilled infantry on the, on, on the planet. Uh, but, but you know, you know, without armored forces forward positioned in Europe, I don't think Russia really gives a damn about, about, uh, about, about you know, a thousand troops somewhere. These kind of paltry numbers of troops that were kind of sprinkling around uh, the Black Sea area and into the Baltic states. So I, I think that's the third objective, right, is, is make up, you know, for, for some of the, the, the poor policies and bad decisions we made based on flawed assumptions. And then finally, how do you take advantage of this crisis? Like by pinning this on China, first of all, not allowing them to pose as peacemakers now, you know, after they, you know, Xi Jinping and, and, and Putin said they're BFFs, you know, and, and uh, there's no limits to their partnership and and they had that 5,000-word statement for the, before the Olympics and, and the phone call 24 hours before he assaulted Ukraine. So, I mean, I think what we need is a discussion around the objectives, what we're doing to advance toward those objectives, and then we can assess, hey, is that sufficient or not? And we can certainly assess risk associated with our actions. But inaction uh, comes with a price as well. HR and Mike, I think we should uh, zoom in before we go any further on how the war is going. 
Yes. I'm very concerned that uh, the Western media have fallen in love rather belatedly with Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, and are spinning a yarn uh, that leads the public to expect Ukrainian resistance to prevail. And I think this is highly misleading. And we should, uh, we should allow our, our viewers uh, a, a more sober assessment of the likely uh, outcome of the coming weeks. My perception, and I would welcome correction if it's due from the military experts, is that the Russians have a great deal more in reserve, particularly in terms of armor, than the Ukrainians have. And that although we're reading a lot about the Ukrainian successes, we're not reading nearly enough about continued Russian advances, uh, which are the reality as far as we can tell from satellite tracking. Can you give us a sense of how this is going to play out? My read as an amateur armchair historian strategist is that the Russians over the next few weeks can take significantly more Ukrainian territory and inflict significantly more damage on Ukrainian cities than the public in the West is being led to expect. What's your take, gentlemen? Well, I think that gets to the key point. But first, I think, there, to your point, there's a lot of missiles that have not been fired that could be fired that perhaps are being held for in the case of an escalation with NATO. Uh, we, uh, we just got a, a, a report from uh, the Secretary of Defense that they have actually vetoed the Polish proposal to send MiG-29s to Poland, and I have yet to get a, an explanation for why. Um, and I think the, the, I was sort of going through the thought experiment today of, let's say Putin were to sue for peace today like at a, at, a, at a point that's not that advantageous for him. Well, even in that worst case scenario for him, he it's not like the Donbass is going back to Ukrainian control anytime soon. He'll have fortified his position in Crimea. The entire, at least half the country will have Finland dies in his direction. He'll force some concession in terms of the Ukrainians foregoing any future bid uh, to join NATO. Uh, it's amazing to me how he's reset the goalposts in his directions even with the friction that his invasion has encountered. And I just keep coming to the, back to this point that to people like Putin, human life is cheap. We've seen it in Chechnya, Syria, in the target assassinations he's undertaken around the world. The international press is rightly eager to celebrate each smoldering Russian tank, but we can't get ahead of ourselves. Putin does not value the lives of his own soldiers, let alone civilians, the way that we in the United States do. He will not, he doesn't need to fight a precision war. It's going to be blunt, bloody, barbaric. And the more he loses, the more he will seek to escalate the stakes. That's the Russian playbook. And I just, I think throughout this crisis, and I'll end here, we have been so afraid of escalation. We've been afraid of provoking Putin that ironically, that, that fear itself has been provocative to Putin. But I'll pause there and HR can tell well, me why I'm Let wrong. me follow up on that one. Um, so we talked about strategy and there's three levels of strategy. Uh, one is what happens in the next couple of weeks in Ukraine. The second is what is the long run outlook for Ukraine, ours and the Ukrainians. And then the third, that stuff HR mentioned, you know, energy policy and, and long-term military uh, rebuilding. Those those are not going to fight fight this war in either of the first two, but that certainly is the long run one. So let's go to the short run one. You know, where are we going? And and uh, is there some way, uh, is there some objective other than what you just said? Putin takes over and destroys enough of the country. There's some sort of talks. Basically, he gets the separatist regions and Crimea. 
Uh, and then we sit down to talk about uh, when are we going to give in on the sanctions like we usually do. And I noticed that President Zelensky, um, you know, put that on the table. He put on the table, you know, you, you can have the separatist regions in Crimea. And, and then we sit down and talk because he's got to. He's, he's got to save his country and his people. And one way of putting it is, is this a war for Ukraine or is this a war for Europe? And a war for Ukraine ends there, but the war for Europe and the rest of the world, maybe we should not be that satisfied with that as the long run strategy. And like what you said, our administration is reactive. You, you put it beautifully. Sanctions are a deterrent. They are not a war fighting strategy. Uh, so now we're, we're putting on the sanctions, but where's the war fighting strategy? And what is the, let's start with the first objective. Where are we going? What's the, what's the end point in Ukraine from our point of view? And is it enough to let him let let Putin bite off a couple things, suffer a little bit, and back to the negotiating table. Part of the problem, John, before we get get into that, is a sanctions weren't a deterrent, and b it's not clear that we had a coherent strategy. We we've been talking about making Ukraine a member of NATO since two thousand eight, uh, but we actually haven't got uh, them any closer to being members than they were then. What we did was to set up the idea that they would become members, only never. Uh, and at the same time, leaving them very vulnerable as a result, we did not arm them sufficiently well to deter the Russian invasion. And I think when we do the inquest, we'll find that arms sales to Ukraine or arms uh, deliveries to Ukraine peaked in 2018 and then declined steeply. Uh, and, and that is, of course, why Putin wasn't deterred, because if Ukraine had been properly armed, adequately armed, I don't think we'd be in this situation. I agree with what Mike Gallagher says about signaling weakness. Uh, I, I think that's been absolutely the key to this disaster. And I also agree with him that it has been a disaster. Anybody who's trying to spin this as a success hasn't understood that a full-blown war is raging in Eastern Europe for the first time in 1945, and it isn't going to end tomorrow, because the Russians are certainly capable of continuing to prosecute this war for at least another few weeks. Uh, if we believe the stories about their, their difficulties, uh, they'll at some point uh, call a halt. Uh, but I don't know where they'll be three weeks from now. They might have taken Kiev. They may control the entire south coast. And, and that's what concerns me. It's not like he's about to start negotiating peace now. Anything that the Russians say on the subject of peace now, I think should be treated with a pinch of salt. They are going to continue to fight this war until uh, the costs of continuing to prosecute it outweigh the benefits in Vladimir Putin's eyes. And my guess is that when the negotiations begin, the position of the Ukrainians will be much weaker. And Neil, when you say fight this war, what they're doing now because of the ineffective nature of the campaign so far, the ineffective, the, the lack of results in, in close combat, their inability really to fight together as combined arms and joint teams to, to overmatch Ukrainian defenses. What they're doing is shifting, as, as we all know, to mass murder attacks against civilian populations and cities. That's what they're doing. They're not fighting. They're bombarding. And they're doing it now from these fortified uh, positions uh, with artillery and rocket launchers, uh, and they're defending them. They're using the maneuver forces to defend those firing positions rather than to close with Ukrainian defenders in urban terrain. And the reason why they can't do that is because they're not well-trained. They're not well-led. They're not ready. They're, de they're demonstrating a high degree of indiscipline in terms of just maintaining their, their weapons and equipment. And a lot of their stuff doesn't work. And, you know, I, and of course, we're only all getting glimpses of this, 
But I think before we say the Russians are going to be successful, I think, and we, I think we may agree on the fundamentals, but we're interpreting it differently. They've already failed. They've already failed because all of the assumptions on which Vladimir Putin based this offensive turned out to be false. The Ukrainians would fold. They wouldn't be able to put up a good defense. They wouldn't infl inflict su sufficient losses. It's going to be easy. They're going to be able to execute a coup de main against Kiev. Zelensky's, you know, a, you know, a, a weak and he'll flee. Uh, and, and so none of that turned out to be the case. And so I think what we ought to do is be doing everything we can to increase the defensive capability of the Ukrainians, medium range air defense capabilities, short of ship missiles, not just more stingers than anti-tank, but yeah, that too. But I, I think what you're right, I agree with you that if, if, uh, if deterrence is capability times will, we didn't give them the capabilities when we had a chance to do it. And we demonstrated a lack of will by telling them everything we weren't going to do. And how we're still this, doing it. Why is, you know, why the heck is how did that, did that make sense? Right. So, you know, I, I think that I, I'm agreeing with you generally, but I think if the standard of Russian success is, did, are they able to accomplish the objectives they set out to accomplish at the outset? They have failed already because the force that they have there. And by the way, the forces they can mobilize to go in are insufficient to subjugate all of Ukraine. Insufficient. Is because of the objective. will and the courage of the Ukrainians and because of the capabilities they did develop with what we did provide them from 2014 to today. Quick question for you guys, John, if I may. Is, is this, so I think one of the really interesting questions here is uh, whether they are left in control of some significant part of the country, but with an insurgency uh, that uh, starts to make Ukraine look like they're Iraq. Now, the difference, of course, is that the, the Russians will use uh, far more indiscriminate uh, violence in the face of an insurgency. But I sense that there is that potential outcome, that, that, that they could win uh, the conventional war uh, through aerial bombardment that the Ukrainians really can't counter. But then they'll find themselves in control of a country that they can't, in fact, control. Does that ring a bell? I've heard this analogy used a few times, but you're better equipped to answer it than I am. Uh, yes. Right. Heck yeah. I mean, so I think, yes, Neil, I, I agree with that framing. That's right. I mean, you know, so, hey, consolidation of military gains has never been an optional phase in war if you want to achieve a sustainable political outcome, which is what Putin wanted. Right. I mean, you can't just, you know, leave on a high note after you rubble a city. Right. You, you're, you, you rubbled the city in the case of, of Russia, uh, to be able to achieve their political objective of extending Russia's influence across the former territory of the Soviet Union, which is the way they view Ukraine. And, and I don't think he can do it. I mean, I, I think what the Ukrainian people have, to have, have demonstrated is he can't do it. Not with the military he's got. It's mm -hmm. impossible. I want Mike. to challenge that, but it's Mike's turn. Well, can I? Okay, so I can see the point that, as HR, I think, put it last week on TV, Putin got more than he bargained for. OK, I, I concede that point. But to say that he's failed, I think, ignores the fact that he has successfully executed a fait accompli in Crimea because this conflict did not start on February 24th of 2022 and in the Donbass. Right. And it looks increasingly like that even in the worst case scenario, he will control the southern coast as Neil pointed out. So I, I, I don't know where that puts me in, in the spectrum of disagreement here. 
It also brings to mind sort of another narrative that I'm not sure is totally accurate that we've heard the last week, which is that our intelligence community has been brilliant in terms of the strategy of declassifying, sharing with NATO, telling people that Putin was going to invade and manufacture a reason to do so. Okay. Putin had how many troops on the border of Ukraine? 130,000? I mean, it doesn't take like access to exquisite SIGINT or human to understand that he might want to invade the country and in the process manufacture a false reason for doing so. And I can't help but think with all due respect to the intelligence community, and I'm an intelligence officer by trade, so I have nothing but respect for our dedicated intelligence professionals. Have we not seen two big intelligence failures in the last year that kind of go in the opposite direction? In Afghanistan, we under we. We overestimated the ability of the Afghan National Security Force to hold out against the Taliban. And then in Ukraine, despite the fact that a lot of these guys come to our military schools and train here, we underestimated their ability to hold out against the Russian military and perhaps overestimated the capabilities of the Russian military. I, I, that's just interesting to me and something that I think we should learn from. So I'm yeah, I'll just say, by Kate, it's always going to be that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, hey, w- war is in the realm of uncertainty. Right. What, what Klaus would say, they aim at fixed values, but everything in war is cloaked in uncertainty. And I know you know that. So, you know, I, I know that we w- like to talk about intelligence failures a lot, but I think a lot of these are leadership failures, operations failures m- more than intelligence failures. Can I ask you, did sort of the Putin wins uh, or not or he ha- or he's lost already from the HR? Um, I thought his number one objective is Ukraine does not develop into a prosperous Western democracy, doesn't think about joining NATO, is not a challenge by its example to Russia. Bingo. He's won. He's going to destroy the country one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, our objective is roll back to the borders. You don't invade countries anymore. And listen, to the, and that means you too, Xi Jinping. But it looks to me like uh, he's got most of what he needs. He just needs to sort of settle down and start negotiating. And it doesn't, I don't see a way to get what our objectives ought to be out of this. Well, hold on a moment, uh, John, because while I I think it's true that destroying Ukraine's viability as a Western-oriented democracy is is Putin's plan, and he's well on the way to doing that, he is facing an attack on the Russian economy that is significantly greater than he bargained for. And I want to get your thoughts on that and also uh, uh, Congressman Gallagher's, because it seems to me that there's an extraordinary race going on at the moment. And the race is between Russia's ability to degrade Ukraine's defenses and our ability to degrade Russia's economy. And I'm not quite sure who wins that race. My guess is that the Russians can still do a lot more damage before the sanctions really stop this war. But this is a huge economic shock. I've heard people allude to the 1998 uh, default this is much worse. This is going to be like the early 1990s after the Soviet Union fell apart. Their economy is falling off a cliff. It's going to contract by at least a third in the next quarter. And we haven't yet finished because coming soon, as we already mentioned, we're going to start restricting their ability to sell their oil. Actually, the market's already doing that. One thing that's really interesting at the moment is that the private sector sanction phenomenon, where the companies are actually ahead of governments in imposing sanctions on okay. Russia. No. And, uh, hey, John- and hey, hey, Neil, also, I just point out for our, our, you know, our listeners, 1998 was the beginning of the end of Boris Yeltsin, too, right? So, I, I mean, the, the other question is, and this is what I'd like to hear John's thoughts on this and, and Congressman Gallagher's thought on this as well, is, you know, 
what, what happens internally uh, in Russia, right? I mean, we're talking about Russia and we're framing this as, you know, Russia's accomplished a lot and they have, right, through brute force. But, but did, did Putin really accomplish what he wanted to do uh, and, and from the outset? And hey, when, if, the, if the numbers are right, of 4,500 Russians killed, I mean, I don't know if that's right, but that's in the middle and that's the Bellingcat kind of estimate. Um, how, how do the Russians react to that? You know, so I, I don't know. I mean, so the economics and, and then the will of the Russians, because the economics affects the will. And so does, I think, what's happening in Ukraine and the losses. So, John and Mike, take it away there. Well, maybe maybe I'll tee it up. <clears throat> My, remember the, the point we keep having the mercantilist debate around here. The point of exporting oil is to get money in order to import stuff. Just sending us oil actually helps us and, and hurts them. Uh, and the crucial question is, is can Russia survive without imports? The answer is no. Uh, they need all of their industries. They need semiconductors. They need jet engine parts. Uh, they will, they will slow, if they can't import things, uh, they will slowly grind to a, a halt in a matter of, of weeks and months. It just will be a disaster. Uh, now the question is, can they start working their way around sanctions? You know, they, they have to get some money and then they have to find a way to hold on to the money. And then they have to find a way to give the money to someone who want to import from, and then they have to get the ships there. But they, you know, China may start selling them. The, the, the countries have ways around this and we'll see. But I, I, I think you're right. It's going to be a disaster for the Russian economy. Now, how long can Russia put that up with? Fellow historians, uh, you know, the, the Germans made it all the way to Moscow in a pretty horrible time. And then Russia turned around there. Russia seems to be able to impose horrendous conditions on its own citizens. A police state can can keep people from the kind of rebellion that I think we're we're hoping for, but that's that's not the way to fight wars is to hope for domestic rebellions. So um, and and it's and like you said, it's not going to slow down the next month or two of this actual war. It's going to cause tremendous suffering in Russia, uh, and then we'll we'll see on their ability to slowly work their way around a sanctions regime. Well, I would just say, well, I think Neil hit on the thing I find most fascinating, which is just sort of the voluntary private sector sanctions. I mean, we've cut off CNN, Facebook and uh, and Pornhub and in the process (laughs) may have actually helped the Russians grow stronger uh, as a result. (laughs) But um, I uh, my sense is and it's a very unsophisticated take. I'm all for going hard after Putin and his cronies and military officials and intelligence officials. And I, I think we can and should stop buying Russian oil as long as we have a plan for Russia weaponizing supply chains for things like metals such as titanium, which we use in a lot of high stress aerospace, wheat, fertilizer. I don't think we've kind of gained that out, the kind of financial and economic escalation. But my bottom line sense is we can wage a global economic war against Russia, but we cannot do it while simultaneously maintaining this war on domestic energy production here in America. And that to me remains the fundamental and fatal flaw in the Biden administration's foreign policy. They still seem to be held hostage to to the sort of John Kerry wing and the the cult of climate change. I mean, I just keep thinking about the absurdity on display right now where with gas prices skyrocketing, which they're blaming entirely on the war in Ukraine, despite the fact that they were increasing prior to the war. The, t- the, the Biden team is reportedly going around the globe looking for additional oil, oil supplies in Venezuela. Uh, I think part of the justification for getting back into the Iran deal will be to bring a million or two barrels of Iranian crude onto the international market. But what, where is he refusing to talk to, right? Uh, Texas, Pennsylvania, Louisiana. How about Canada? Exactly. I mean, you know, he exactly. Gets, he gets, with the Canadian pipeline. 
right? I mean, and Greenland and Russian one, and now we're going to, to Venezuela to talk to Maduro. I mean, it's it's nutty. It's nutty. Well, the impressive about, thing about Maduro is that he's caused to Venezuela, his own country, what Putin is currently doing uh, to Ukraine, a massive refugee crisis. But this exposes the fact that their policies are completely self-contradictory. I mean, if they were real climate purists, presumably they wouldn't be talking to the Saudis and the Venezuelans. I think there's a solution to this problem. Uh, Ken Griffin and I did an op-ed about this uh, last week, which is, that if you ramp up uh, U.S. natural gas production, uh, you can, in fact, replace Russia in the European market remarkably quickly. But those investments in pipelines and and liquefaction aren't going to happen as long as the regime uh, at the top and all the way down to the courts is basically hostile to this kind of investment. So I I think we have a profound domestic political problem here, which isn't going to get solved until, well, maybe until... Uh, the winds of political change blow in, in Washington. Let me just I, I would foot stomp that with a, put it a little bit more provocatively. I think up until this week, you can make the case that the, that there, if there's any oil and gas that Biden had been sanctioning, it's our own. And until we kick the radicals out of FERC, until we have some engagement with Wall Street and BlackRock to cut out all this this global ESG crap that's killing us right now, we're going to be in a weak position. And oh, by the way, how fortunate are we right now to even be able to discuss cutting off the import of Russian oil to this country? The fact that we can even have that discussion is because of the hard work of a lot of American men and women in the oil and gas sector who continue to be vilified by the left right now. And they've given us something that Europe is in desperate need of right now, energy security. And Europe shows the dangers of outsourcing your energy security policy to ideologues and Swedish teenagers. And we cannot continue to go down that path. You know, Germany's Germany's shutting down factories to sell their energy allocations. You know, they can't keep the lights on. So, and we're, and we're like, it's like, we're trying to replicate the same thing. And by the way, there's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how energy transitions happen. You just don't one day stop hydrocarbons and then go to renewables, right? There is a gradual transformation. And the best way to do that, a transition, is, is with natural gas as a bridge uh, to, you know, to, to renewables and to nuclear. Uh, and and uh, it makes no sense the, the way that we're, that we're approaching this because we're actually exporting a hell of a lot more coal and the world is burning more coal. Which is the you know the, the number one man-made energy-based cause of of, uh, of carbon emissions. But right? I mean, each one of those coal-fired plants burns a ton of coal every minute. So let, let me just where are we? Is uh, the U.S. You put it beautifully. The sanctions that we impose on our own oil and gas production because that's the the method that it's going is through the financial system that regime is up and running in fact just this week a Nelly Lang of the FSOC uh, announced uh, you know we're ratcheting up on how we're going to uh, turn off uh, all investment and it's just hilarious the idea that we stop investment in uh, we stop investment in our own stuff um, because we're worried they'll go bankrupt uh, excuse me they're making huge profits um, that regime is still fully in place. And I think the only way to understand what's going on is that the, the idea of squeezing our oil companies, the, the policy, under, disinvest in fossil fuel before the alternatives are at scale and watch prices rise. That's the policy. 
that policy through financial regulation, because God knows you can't get it through Congress. <laughs> Those angry voters would go nuts if you if they found out. That policy is still firmly in place. So what are they doing? Bringing on some emergency supplies by handing out goodies to Iran uh, and Venezuela, trying to keep the gas prices under five bucks a gallon so that the stupid voters won't notice what's going on in November. This war overs and we go back to the war on fossil fuels. Uh, exactly. That, that's the only way I understand uh, what, what they're doing. There, let's, let's, let's shift to China here. Uh, Congressman, you talk about the new Cold War. I guess Neil has a copyright on Cold War II, so you can't use that phrase. But um, it's an overlooked story right now. But your thoughts, Congressman, on what China's long game is? And also, I think you're interested in China and sanctions. Well, I believe I gave Neil a shout out when I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal arguing for why Cold War was a useful analogy. If I didn't, I apologize, Neil. And I feel especially guilty because you're the only person who pronounces my last name as they did in the mother country of Ireland. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, listen, I, I think this is another narrative I disagree with. The Wall Street Journal wrote two articles suggesting that this has caused a rift in the Russia-China relationship. Perhaps it's caused some temporary surprise or difficult or friction, but I see no rupture over the long term. And I think the same people perpetuating this narrative are the people that think this friendship between Putin and Xi, and that's an inaccurate way to describe it, was born on February 4th with the Olympic statement. It goes back far uh, longer than that. And it's built on a common threat perception in both countries, which is that the United States and democracy more general are threats to regime survival. I don't see that going away anytime soon. If anything, I think this crisis, if it goes bad for Putin, makes him more dependent on Xi. And I wonder, and this is a question I had for Neil in particular, is there a world in which our aggressive sanctions regime on Russia actually benefits China? Because not only do they sort of learn from the experience and accelerate their attempts to immunize themselves from further U.S. sanctions, but you know they, they benefit from getting more Russian oil and gas, more Iranian crude, and it, they, their attempts to de-dollarize the global economy uh, accelerates, as well as just their attempts to weaponize every platform, right? We're entering the platform wars. The dollar's a platform. Weapon systems are a platform. Swift is a platform. Cloud services are a platform. If we weaponize our platforms, they're going to look to do the same. I don't know if that makes sense, but I've been eager to get Neil's take on it. Yeah, I think this is an interesting moment for Xi Jinping because he must have been told that this would be an easy operation because that's clearly what the Russians believe. They even had the editorials ready to run uh, after the fall of Kiev, which somebody foolishly published. Uh, so they're presumably a little disconcerted by the fact that this has gone uh, pretty awry. On the other hand, I agree with you, Mike. I don't think that uh, she is about to throw Putin under the bus. Quite the opposite. The Chinese can exploit the situation in a number of ways to their own advantage. One is, and they've already started, to pose as peacemakers and to seize the diplomatic initiative, an initiative that should belong to the United States, but they're already signaling that they're going to be the peace brokers. Well, if, if I'm Putin, they're precisely the people that I want to be brokering any kind of ceasefire or, or peace. The second thing that they can do is indeed to take uh, Russia's uh, oil and when they can uh, organize the infrastructure, gas too, and of course at below market prices because the Chinese are specialists in doing that. When, you, when you're running around somebody's sanctions regime, you don't need to pay top 
uh, dollar. Uh, they're also going to sell stuff uh, to the Russians that previously the Russians bought from the West. So the Chinese are certainly going to net a, an economic win. It won't be enough to offset the shock to the Russian economy. Uh, but from a Chinese point of view, they're definitely going to gain some market share there. But the thing that really interests me is the opportunity that now exists to make the Chinese central bank digital currency ECNY, a significant means of cross-border payment. Now, they've been rapidly rolling this out since the pandemic struck ahead of their original schedule, and they used the Olympics as an opportunity to create a whole load of wallets. What I'm watching to see is whether they use that as a way of giving Putin some financial relief, because this is a huge opportunity for them to take a country that's been shut out of uh, the Western payment system that, that, bank, that has had its banks cut off from SWIFT and say, you don't need SWIFT anymore. You've got the, uh, the ECNY. That's a big deal from my vantage point, because ultimately, let's face it, we've overused financial sanctions as a tool since 9-11. And the more you use your superpower, the more people think, hey, there has to be a way around this. And there sure is, because the technology of payment rails like SWIFT is pretty old. And what I'm concerned about is that this is actually an opportunity for the Chinese to create an international use for the ECNY that previously wasn't really there. Oh, and one last thought, which is really related to the strategic problem that the United States confronts. It's not just about Eastern Europe. It's um, as much about the Middle East. And the more you make concessions to the Iranians and the Iran deal to try to get it back up and running and get their oil, the more you destabilize the Middle East, because it's not like the Israelis and Arabs love what you're doing. And then there's Taiwan, which we haven't talked about. If I'm Xi Jinping, my conclusions from uh, the last two weeks are as follows. Number one, if the United States relies on sanctions to fight its wars, we're in good shape because they'll never be able to do to us what they did to the Russians. It'd be too costly uh, to the West to do these kind of sanctions uh, on the Chinese financial system. And number two, uh, if you're going to fight uh, a neighboring country, uh, better pick one uh, that's not going to fight back anything like as tenaciously as the Ukrainians. And I do, do not envision uh, the Taiwanese fighting in the streets of Taipei the way the Ukrainians are fighting in the streets of Kyiv. So I don't think he's necessarily deterred uh, from making a move on Taiwan in the relatively near future by anything that's happening in Ukraine. Can, can I pile on with that? Um, what, what have we, what has Xi Jinping learned about Ukraine? First of all, we've announced a doctrine almost the U.S. will not have a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Our forces are not engaged and will not engage in the conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. Why? Because a U.S. pilot might be the one to pull the trigger that sends the U.S. bomb that we're selling to the Ukrainians and, and shoots a Russian, and that might be provocative. So we will not fight. What, so that doctrine seems to apply to Taiwan. Not only not a no-fly zone, we will not fight a nuclear armed power. That also means our ships will not enforce an embargo. So lesson number one, uh, you're not gonna worry about that one. And exactly right, lesson number two, we're gonna try to fight with sanctions. Now, oil prices are gonna go up, but actually our economies can do quite well with higher oil prices, especially after that it'll be a political problem, but we, it, it's not gonna hurt us that much. You cut off menu, all the manufactured goods that come from China, that's going to hurt us a lot. Third, the rest of the world, everybody's piling in and saying this is absolutely outrageous what Russia is doing. As you said, the private sector sanctions are really hitting it. How much of the world is going to say, you know, China taking over Taiwan, that's just an outrage. We refuse to trade with China, even if the U.S. doesn't stop. No, most of the world's going to say 
bring it, bring us the goodies. Uh, so I think this just this hands Taiwan to Xi Jinping on a silver platter. I told. Can we do that. the no-fly zone with the military experts on the call? Because John, you've you've argued for it. Um, I think I'm, I'm less convinced. Well, and I, at least don't stand up on TV and say we will not do it under any circumstances. Because we're, we're selling them weapons that they use to shoot at Russians. So is that not provocative? Anyway, go ahead. Let's get let's get the four panelists' thoughts on no-fly zone. Congressman, you go first. I think it would be a mistake under current circumstances. Obviously, we want to do everything we can to help the Ukrainians while not taking the first shot at the Russians or taking steps that would lead to direct combat between us and the Russians. I feel like people are just throwing around the term no-fly zone without an understanding for what that would entail, both on the air and in the ground. Because not only are we committed to shooting down Russian aircraft, we also have to take out their anti-air capabilities in the process. And I just don't think we're prepared to do that. You know, throughout the Cold War, you know, we sought to avoid direct conflict with the Russians, and I think we need to be aggressive but very smart right now. John, agree or rebut? Um, halfway. Uh, don't rule it out ex ante and say you're never going to do it. Our objective has to Fair. be do what it takes to keep the Ukrainian government alive. And if they start to lose, maybe we need to rethink it. Think hard about what's provocative and what isn't. Is it not provocative to send a whole bunch of anti-tank missiles or anti-aircraft missiles that will shoot down Russian aircraft? But it is provocative to have a U.S. pilot pulling that trigger. I don't well, know. So there I there are just, historical so, precedents there, John. It's pretty no, clear. No, I know. And we, we held off in Vietnam. I mean, think of 1973. I mean, we yes. didn't go. We didn't send American planes to... Right help the Israelis against the Syrians and Egyptians. We, we and sent we, we held off in our targeting. Hey, Russian, Russian pilots flew against us in Vietnam uh, and, and, and in Korea. So, I mean, I, you know, Soviet. I just, Soviet. Don't, don't take it off the table, especially while Xi Jinping is listening. That's all I want to argue. Well, I agree with that aspect. Don't, don't take anything off the table. Yeah, well, you know, there's a risk of action and there's a risk of inaction. And of course, this, we know war doesn't remain static. And what we're confronted with now is a humanitarian catastrophe of colossal scale. The estimates are that if Russia continues this campaign of rubbling the cities, that they will murder 1 million innocent people and create 10 million refugees. Mm -hmm. And do we just sit, you know, at the borders of Ukraine and say, damn, let's do all we can, you know, to help the Ukrainians? Or mm -hmm. at some stage, do we say, along with, you know, the world, much of the world, you know, less China, you know, and and the, the other five you know, nations that voted you know, against, they abstained, but voted against the UN Security Council uh, or, the, or the General Assembly resolution, um, you know, that, and just say this, it's just too bad, right? So I think, again, we don't take it off the table. And there are other ways to challenge their control of the air, which Ukrainians are doing right now, right? I mean, they've shot down, I mean, I think probably like something like 70 aircraft. I don't know what the exact number is. Nobody really knows for sure. But they've done that with mainly with short-range air defense weapon systems. Why not medium range? Why wouldn't we give medium range? It is quite possible to establish air supremacy uh, or superiority uh, over Ukraine, much of Ukraine, from the ground. So there are, there are ways to do it without us declaring a no-fly zone. The French and Italians have pretty damn exquisite medium-range air defense capabilities. Why aren't we giving them to Ukraine? How about shortest ship missiles? Hey, if the Iranians can get the Houthi rebels, you know, uh, uh, terrorists really, uh, right. to fire a shortest ship missile and sink uh, uh, or, or and strike uh, vessels in, in the Bab el Mandeb, or give Hezbollah, as they've done, missiles to shoot an Israeli defense force uh, vessel uh, in the Mediterranean, 
I mean, I think we could probably do that. Help the Ukrainians with some shorter ship missiles. How about capabilities that go after Russia's uh, fires capabilities, the, the artillery and the rockets that are bombarding these cities, like drones with sufficient payloads to attack them and swarm drones, all of which exist and could be given to them now. Now, hopefully that's happening. But there's a hell of a lot more we could do short of declaring a, a no-fly zone that is patrolled and enforced by U.S. or NATO aircraft. Well, I love this show. Somebody knows what he's talking about. Thank you, HR. One other thing we have to talk about, and that is the reason that we pull back from uh, any military action that might be construed as escalating the conflict beyond Ukraine to involve NATO countries is that Vladimir Putin has nuclear weapons. And I think one of the mistakes that the Biden administration has made in the last couple of weeks has been not to respond when he threatened uh, to use them. Uh, that was the moment in the Cold War playbook when we said, if you do that, we will retaliate in kind. And we didn't say anything. On the contrary, if anything, we pulled back from the idea of lending uh, jets uh, from NATO countries uh, to Ukraine. And it sounds from what you were saying, uh, Mike, that that has once again been taken off the table. So I'm worried that we don't have a nuclear deterrent anymore because we're not prepared to even contemplate the possibility that if he used a tactical nuclear weapon in this war, we would respond appropriately. Well, even beyond that, in terms of provocative weakness over the past year, the administration has been flirting with a no first use policy, and then they've sort of repackaged this as a sole purpose use that we're going to basically undermine our entire extended nuclear deterrent with respect to NATO. They have not jettisoned that concept, by the way, and it could still reemerge. And I would make a broader prediction, and this relates to your early, earlier China point, because ultimately it depends on what lessons we learn from this crisis, whether this sort of uh, uh, delays or expedites Xi's timeline over Taiwan. I'm almost certain they're going to cite their management of the Ukraine crisis as evidence that their broader defense policy, what they're calling integrated deterrence, is working and we must double down on it. In fact, the vice CNO confirmed that when I questioned him last week, the most generous interpretation of integrated deterrence, it's just another unnecessary phrase for grand strategy, the integration of all instruments of national power, which illustrates why it doesn't make sense as a, as a national defense strategy perhaps. But the, I think my actual assessment of integrated deterrence is its code for cutting hard power and prioritizing um, other things, uh, whether it's climate initiatives or DEI initiatives. Uh, it's a clever way of abandoning peace through strength that I think is going to do enormous damage to our defense policy going forward. So sorry to go on. A uh, hey, hey Mike, I'm so, I'm so glad you brought that up. You were so right about this, right? And, and this is just, it, it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a farce, uh, integrated deterrence. And uh, in terms of, in terms of the, the way the phrase is being used, and it's meant to, to justify cuts in, in modernization of the armed forces. And there's already a bow wave of deferred modernization, but especially in capacity. OK, now, you know, hey, I'm an armor guy. You look at my join the tanks mug right there. Right. OK, so you know, what, what do you what do you care about on land power? I mean, you know, I mean, you really need armored forces. We only have 11 armored brigades in the whole army and the Marine Corps is getting rid of all their tanks. How does that make sense? I think what you're seeing today is that actually close combat 
is maybe even more important than it was before we've seen the emergence of some of these new military capabilities. And capacity matters. The Biden administration was about to come out, Mike, and you know more about this than I do, so please comment on this, with a defense strategy that said, oh, you know, we just have to worry about one crisis at a time. It's yeah. all about China. There's really nothing else to worry about. We have to worry about jihadist terrorists. We don't have to worry about Russia. It's just all about China. And by the way, Neil, to your point about the Middle East being an important arena competition, we only have to compete with China in the geographic confines of the Indo-Pacific region, right? And so you know, it, it is actually fantastical, this defense concept. And, and Mike, can you say something about that? Have they reeled it back? Are they going to come to their senses? What's your, what's your prognosis here? Uh, my prognosis is they have not reeled it back. I mean, they may sprinkle in some language into the national security strategy and national defense strategy about Russia that wasn't there before, but they remain wedded to this. And I, my actual uh, primary concern with uh, integrated deterrence, and it gets to something you've written about extensively, HR, is that it it fetishizes technology in a way that is totally damaging to current realities, right? It's almost like a it's a reinvigoration of third offset thinking and or the, or like, the revolution in military yes. affairs of the 90s, right? So what they've been talking about is we need to divest, i.e. your tank discussion, divest to invest in future right. technology that's unproven. So what is that future technology that's going to deter Xi Jinping from invading Taiwan? Is it JADC2, Joint All-Domain Command and Control? I mean, no, we need to be talking. And your sense of the timing, I think, particularly in the Taiwan crisis, is everything. Because if you think the, the crisis is likely to occur this decade, then the divest to invest strategy, which is at the heart of integrated deterrence, makes no sense at all. In fact, you need to be figuring out what weapon systems can you field now, i.e. in the next two to three years, that will actually force them to think twice. I've seen no evidence that they've reconsidered that. Because the, the lesson only- of you, Ukraine right. is that you really do need a porcupine strategy for Taiwan yes tomorrow you need to start building it tomorrow because this issue is highly likely to come up next year after the chinese have gone through their domestic uh, political charade of uh, extending xi jinping's uh, term as leader so i'm i'm deeply concerned that uh, we're sleepwalking towards another crisis uh, and that the crises don't necessarily come along one at a time giving you plenty of time to prepare it's quite possible that the administration before it's done will be simultaneously dealing with crises in eastern europe the middle east and the taiwan strait and i don't like to think how that's going to go i wrote a piece a, a couple of weeks ago saying you know jimmy carter eat your heart out because this is actually going to make 1979 look like a relatively limited geopolitical crisis for the united states i think it could be worse much worse than 79 and we haven't really talked about this there's quite a lot of economic blowback implicit in all of this it's not only Russia that's going to get hurt economically. Europe is going to have a recession with very high probability now because of the huge increase in energy costs. The US is less exposed, certainly less than it was in the 70s. But I still feel a bit nervous, John, about what's going on in the financial plumbing. A lot of people had a lot of money in Russia, maybe not as much as they had in China, but it feels like we haven't quite seen the end of the financial ramifications of all of this. So what makes me think 79 is that combination of geopolitical crisis and economic malaise, which I'm very much afraid this administration is is producing. 
Can I, can I, I want to go back to the nuclear uh, question a little bit, just to, to get your thoughts on the larger doctrine strategy. Uh, it used to be nuclear weapons. We, the kind of rules were a country that has nuclear weapons, you don't invade it because <laughs> that's that's what nuclear weapons are for, to re retaliate, to threaten. You know, you can't invade us. But uh, if you invade a third country unprovoked, you don't get to rattle the nukes to say, hey, you guys don't fight back. Well, we just kind of changed that. Now, now we did we tried not to provoke larger conventional wars with a, a capable ally, but we didn't give in to that. Now that's changed. So now, uh, oh, a nuclear armed enemy, we can't, uh, we can't do anything about even invading conventional wars. As Neil said, conventionally, what, if he says, well, I'm gonna you know, use my nuclear weapons, the answer is, well, we got a couple of those too, which we seem to have taken off the table. No, that always was an interesting question. Uh, if uh, Putin uses a couple of nuclear weapons in Poland, are we really going to you know, kill everybody in Moscow? Maybe not. That seems, the answer to that seems to be, you need a large, credible, conventional capacity as well. We spend, NATO spends one, one trillion bucks a year on defense. Putin spends 62 billion a year. Uh, there ought to be, as HR says, the capacity to say, okay, one battlefield nuke and we're sending the tanks in that way and, and we know how to do something about it. Uh, you don't rely only on the nuclear counterattack because it's kind of questionable. But all that seems to be out the window. Uh, so uh, the, the, the large question of strategy and deterrence Quick one for you, HR. If you'd be national security advisor at a time when the Russian president uh, threatened to use nuclear weapons, what would you have advised the president to do? Well, I mean, of course, you have to take this, you know, this kind of behavior seriously, but it, it, it fits a pattern, Neil. And, and what I, I advised indirectly and was a small part of was the development of the Nuclear Posture Review, which was published in 2018. And much of that strategy was developed to deal with this escalation domination or escalate to, to de-escalate strategy that Putin rolled out in the early 2000s and, and continued to double down on. And as you might recall, in February of 2018, showed that animated video you know, of, of missiles descending on, on Mar-a-Lago. But, but essentially, the escalation to escalate to de-escalate is is, is really to, you know, the, this idea that you could use a, a nuclear weapon, you know, against a European target, for example, city, and then, and then pose the United States with the dilemma of, okay, nuclear Armageddon or super peace on our terms. So we have a, a pretty versatile nuclear force that can, that can cope with that. We still, we, we doubled down, you know, and affirmed extended deterrence, the importance of the triad to respond. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and we also, um, I, you know, reinvigorated some of our smaller nuclear weapons and, and refurbished them uh, so that the Russians know that we can respond in a devastating manner with, without adhering to that or, or succumbing to that kind of that dilemma. So, you know, all of, all of this is important. And as John said as well, conventional capabilities can be important uh, in terms of imposing your will with conventional forces as well. The other aspect of this that we that we changed in the nuclear posture review is to is to include really the possibility that we might interpret a massive cyber attack against our command and control systems for something or something as a precursor to a nuclear attack. And that may prompt us to strike. So that was meant to really communicate clearly, uh, you know, don't do that, you know, Russia right? uh, in parentheses. So um, I think it's worth reading the, the nuclear posture review. It was, I think it was a lot of good work that went into that. And, and of course, you know, as Herman Kahn, you know, told us, you know, decades ago, it's important for us to think about the unthinkable. 
and, and to make sure that we can counter something like this, you know, this, this, uh, this terrible, you know, terrible idea, terrible concept of escalation domination. Mike, what, what are you, what's your assessment of? Well, can I do a quick follow-up for you, HR? Yeah. Maybe to, at the risk of putting in more political terms? Okay. Well, and also just say, this is less of a nuke thing, but you guys got out of the INF treaty, which I think was probably one of the most. Oh yeah. That huge, that was, that, that was immensely important Massive. for that too. Yeah, absolutely. Massive. Um, yeah. What I've been subjected to all day today in these five minute speeches, my democratic colleagues have been making is blaming the entire Ukraine crisis on the Trump administration. And I should say <laughs> right. there were times right. when I disagreed with Trump's rhetoric on uh, Russia. I actually think if you examine the policy, it was much stronger than the rhetoric. I, I'd just be curious to get your reaction to that argument that this was all because we enabled Russia for the last four years. It's absolutely ridiculous, is what I would say. Uh, and despite, you know, of course, you know, I, you know, and in, 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 in battlegrounds, I, I criticized President Trump for giving Putin space with, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, the the, the language that. That in some ways was apologizing for his behavior or or helping him uh, with his implausible deniability about his aggression. So but let's acknowledge all that. But let's also acknowledge that the response to him, uh, to, to Putin's aggression, was much stronger in the Trump administration, even before some of the egregious actions like the Skripal poison in Salisbury. And that was even stronger after that. And by the way, I would say it's important to recognize that it was the first year of the Trump administration when we gave the Ukrainians defensive capabilities and allowed them to purchase defensive capabilities. Now, we didn't do that enough, as we were discussing, but what if we had not done it at all, right? And so, and that's what that was the policy of the Obama administration. And then I would just say, okay, are you telling me there's not a direct line between the humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan and this attack? Absolutely there is. It's not a coincidence that he published this August paper about you know, this warped history of Ukraine as a justification for invasion in August, co co coinciding with that humiliating withdrawal. And that's when he decided to do it, because he thought, if you, again, if it turns his capability times will, he thought the Biden administration will was zero. And I, and I think that this is a factor as well as his inflated appreciation or, or assessment or assumptions um, about how capable his own forces were and how easy this was going to be. The line in the sand in Syria, the withdrawal from Iraq, we can keep on. You, you want earlier fecklessness. We got plenty of it for Putin. OK, final question for the group, and then we will uh, we'll call it a day. Um, so much going on with this story, so many aspects. We do the show, Congressman, once a week. So give the audience um, one thing to watch in the next seven days on this. It could be military, economic, diplomatic, you choose. But one aspect of the story you think our viewers should be focused on. Well, I, I think we're going to see a deal with Iran emerge uh, in the next week. I, I could be wrong about that, but um, and the CIA director in open testimony today assured me there was absolutely no linkage between the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, where we're trying to uh, punish Russia and deter Russia from attacking NATO, as, and the fact right. that we are entirely reliant on the Russians for our negotiations with the Iranians uh, and that uh, their lead negotiator is bragging about having swindled us. Lavrov is basically trying to set up a sanctions evasion hub in Iran. I think that will happen this week. And I think that should be a massive concern to all of us because Russia will be a big winner in the deal, uh, as well as China. Uh, as Neil pointed out earlier, uh, you know, China needs crude suppliers that control in Iran is potentially one of those. They just signed a 25-year economic cooperation agreement that's that basically requires us to, to lift sanctions. And oh, by the way, it's very interesting 
that the deputy uh, on the negotiating team, Richard Nephew, left and quit because he was so disgusted with the direction that the talks were going. I think this deal, if it emerges, will will be far worse than the 2015 deal, which I thought was incredibly problematic. And you think it's as simple as the administration is telling the American people, and hey, the Iranians are going to give us a couple million barrels of oil a day. Well, no, it goes a layer deeper than that. And it relates to the question I just asked HR. It's going to be because evil HR McMaster and evil Trump pulled out of the Iran deal, it's this or war. This is our only option. That was evil John as... Bolton. That was evil John Bolton. Oh, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's getting hard to keep track of all these evil <laughs> But it's this or war. And we pulled out of the JCPOA. It was working. And as soon as we pulled out, they turbocharged their nuclear program. Not true if you look at the timeline. Most of the advances, enriching of 20%, now 60%, advanced centrifuges, kicking out the IAE inspectors or blocking their access happened after Biden shifted our policy from maximum pressure to maximum appeasement. John, I never heard you called evil. I read your blog all the time. I've never seen that word thrown at you. <laughs> one, one aspect of this whole story that you're looking at right now. Oh, uh, all of them. Uh, I'm supposed we, we should have talked about the financial stuff, the sanctions and so forth. Uh, let me just pile in on the Middle East question. It is, uh, it is very interesting that the Saudis, the USE and the Israelis are not really helping us that much because they've learned not to trust us in the Middle East. So we didn't really get to the whole Middle East implications of this, but I think that's very interesting. Okay, HR, what are you, what are you looking at? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking at the, at the humanitarian crisis and, and the degree to which that's gonna affect uh, Ukrainian will to be able to continue to fight. Uh, I do think that bombing cities increases the will to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, uh, and I, I think that uh, it's gonna be really important to you know, for us to do everything we can to, to mitigate the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine and to continue to bolster the Ukrainians' will to defend themselves. Okay, Neil, you have the last word. A dog that didn't bark is cyber war. We haven't yes. seen nearly as much as we were expecting from the Russians. Is that because we've successfully deterred <clears throat> them, at least in that domain? Or is Vladimir Putin just saving up? Uh, a really large-scale cyber attack on those corporations that are currently punishing uh, his economy. That's, I think, the thing. That's the thing to watch. But I think the thing I'll be watching most closely is just Russian movements. We have a pretty good idea of these, thanks to the incredibly detailed satellite photography uh, that companies like Planet can provide. We know pretty much what's going on. The maps in the New York Times don't even bother with them. You can get much more accurate uh, pictures of Russian movements uh, from better sources. And I'll be watching that because we'll know when there's going to be a ceasefire when the Russians can no longer advance significantly. But that's what to watch. And I'm afraid you should probably stop consuming your news on this subject from, uh, from cable TV. Yeah. Daryl Duff, can I just do a quick, uh, a quick uh, plug here for Daryl Duffy and Liz Economy's uh, edited volume that was based on some work that we did. We talked about digital currency. Uh, Congressman Gallagher, this I think is something to get out to the Hill and everything. Came out this week and we had a seminar on it. Neil was part of the task force and some of us, we contributed in a minor way here as the good fellows, but really great work again by the Hoover Institution. Good can plug, I HR. It? Can I buy it with Bitcoin or how, how do I? It's for free. free. For free. Even better. <laughs> It's free. <laughs> hey, Congressman Gallagher, thanks for thanks for joining us today. And if you get tired of Congress, bring all these degrees out to the Hoover Institution. You can hang out with these guys in person. And best of all, you'll put uh, gas in your tank at $5.75 a gallon. And you'll just, you won't bat it now. You'll be conditioned. No, all the cars in California will be electric by then. 
It was. It hey, was he went to high Julian school in California. He kind of hides that a little bit, but I know. Go Monarchs. Go Monarchs. Modern day. Go Monarchs. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. On behalf of the Hoover Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H. R. McMaster, our guest today, Congressman Mike Gallagher. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for watching. How would you like to be part of our next show? Yes, we're doing viewer mail, what we call a mailbag show. This is your chance to pose a question to the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, on any topic you want, Ukraine, the economy, the elections, you name it, ask the Goodfellows and we will we'll get it in queue for you. Now, how do you ask a question? Hey, good question, very simple. Go to the following URL, www.hoover.org forward slash ask goodfellows one favor to ask we're recording the show on tuesday the 15th the sooner you send in your question the better you have a chance of getting it on the air so tune in next week and see if you made the cut and hey while i have your attention we've been doing the show for about two years now we really appreciate your loyalty we read your comments we appreciate all the great feedback so thanks for being part of the goodfellows experience and we'll see you next week If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.